בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, good to be back uh, here in Miami. We um, have the uh, Mishnah in Avot that we started last night, ברוך השם, the second Mishnah in uh, the sixth Perek of Perkei uh, Avot, and learned an enormous amount of uh, information about Rabbi Yushua ben Levi and uh, the... Holy Mishnah that he wrote and the, uh, that gives us a little bit of perspective of number one, who we're learning from and a little bit of what we're learning from him uh, in regards to the Holy Torah. In Parashat Chay Sarah, we see that uh, as we talked about last night, the uh, Yaakov and Esav were born and um, the uh, Torah says that they were the same. Meaning, I'm sorry, Parashat Oldot. Parashat Oldot says that they were the same. That you uh, couldn't really tell the difference between them until they were, you know, teenagers, late, late in their teenagehood. The, uh, meaning that in order to be able to tell the difference between a tzaddik and a rasha, it's not necessarily always something that you're going to be able to tell by their clothing. Uh, today we're going to learn a little bit more about what that actually means, how that relates to us. Bezat Hashem today will also uh, be a shiur for refuah shlema to Debbie Bat Rachel, and also Mazal Tov for Mishpachat Ruven, that uh, my, uh, my brother, God bless him, and his wife had a uh, baby boy today, Baruch Hashem. Refuah shlema to his wife. Also, refuah shlema to Debbie Ben Isriya, Doris Bajora, Levana Bat Sara. Elisheva, Chaya Bat Sara, Yochevet Bat Batya, Batya Bat Sara, and all of Am Yisrael Bezat Hashem will have Refuah Shlema, Refuah Nefesh, Refuah Taguf. The Mishnah gave us a little bit of a shock yesterday. To be honest with you. Most of the shiurim we have, I'm a bigger critic of myself than most people are, and only few of my shiurim I've actually ever liked. I think, I'm not saying it's bad material, it's just in general, judging myself. But once in a while, there's enough siyat dishmaya, there's a, uh, enough siyat dishmaya in a shiur where uh, Hashem literally gives me the chidush during the shiur. Meaning that I'm not teaching, I'm learning. Just learn, happen to be learning out loud in front of you guys. The shiur last night, for me personally, was exceptional because I left the shiur shaken. I left the shiur scared. Meaning, if you're not scared, you probably didn't listen. 
don't mean scared like you have to hide under a bed or how people perceive you know fear today like they think it's a bad thing. But meaning scared and motivated to do tshuva. This is the point of learning Torah. This is the point of coming to Shurim. This is the point of reading books. This is the point of life. If you want Hashem's secrets, Hashem says, I, give, I share my secrets with those who fear me. Now, someone asked me today about a certain rabbi. And I care less to mention his name. I've mentioned his name in the past. There's really no reason to mention his name again because I don't want anyone to go watch a shulim just because now they know his name. The point is, is that we're not scared of mentioning names, but when there's no toilet for it, there's no uh, purpose for it, useful purpose for it, there's no need. But this rabbi, or so-called rabbi, on a regular basis, he makes it mamash a thing to do to make sure to distort the Torah. He makes sure that practically in every shiur, at least once, twice, or 15 times, he's going to change the Torah. But unfortunately, people don't know what's right and wrong today. If they hear words coming out of somebody that has long payas or a long beard or a hat or says he's some, uh, he has some yeshiva or he is the head of some yeshiva. People don't double-check anything. We live in a very, very ignorant generation today. Most people don't know anything and it's regardless of whether they're religious or not. I'm finding out more and more today that religious doesn't actually mean knowledgeable. Religious, to me, my whole life, I thought that every rabbi knew everything. Which was the reason why when I was a young kid, and I had some difficult questions, or at least in my age at the time, it seemed like difficult questions, I would ask rabbis, and the rabbis didn't have, they either didn't have answers, or didn't have answers that satisfied me, because it didn't make sense. Like if you ask them something like, where are there dinosaurs in the Torah? And they tell you, no, there's no such thing as dinosaurs. That's not a satisfactory answer. Why? Because you can't just tell me there's no dinosaurs without explaining to me what those bones are in the museums. Now later on you learn there's two parts to this answer. Number one, there are dinosaurs in the Torah. David Melech talks about it. But we also hear about it at the time of Noach and we hear about it from Sefer Bereshit. The Taninim Agdolim. The giant reptiles, which is the definition of what a dinosaur is. But the second part of the answer is that most of the bones that you see in museums are simply fake. They're not real. They just made them up. They don't tell you on the front door or in the brochures that, by the way, 95% of the bones you see in the museum, we just have really creative artists that made them. What they tell you is they show you pictures of some movie called Jurassic Park, and they say, yeah, this you see that you saw the movie? Yeah, that's the bones. That's the bones. 
anyone that pays attention to the Bliyah, to the creation, if they want to see how these so-called archaeologists and so on that have uh, given us some insight about dinosaurs, if you want to know where they got the idea from, because no one was there when these dinosaurs were around, according to them. They say the dinosaurs were around 60 million years ago, 60 billion years ago, 60 trillion years ago. Everybody has a different number. Depends on how much money you're getting from the government. You have a bigger number. But where did they get it from? It took me a long time to figure this out. But about four years ago, maybe three and a half years ago, I had this chidush. I was walking around with my wife and my daughter was born at around the time. And I saw something that I've seen in my life here and there, but not very often until I moved to Florida. And I saw these giant dinosaurs you guys have here in Florida. What do you call them? Uh, these uh, iguanas. These iguanas, these little alligators. And if you pay attention to the iguana, it looks exactly like a dinosaur. Different colors, different shapes, different movements. There's different types of lizards that are not iguanas, but also lizards that you guys have here in Florida. Some of them walk around on two legs, even though they have four. There's a dinosaur in Jurassic Park that looks like that. Some of them walk around in four, and they're like... Point being is that you see that the... Nothing new under the sun here. These movie producers couldn't come up with the picture of what a dinosaur looks like or what the skin of a dinosaur looks like from their own mind. There's no proof to how it looks like. So what did they get? They saw this. They're like, oh, this, I'm sure the dinosaur looks like this. And now the average person thinks that a Tyrannosaurus Rex looks like what they saw in the movie. They're sure of it. Now the average person thinks that any one of these velociraptors or other types of dinosaurs for sure looks like what they saw in the movie because it was repeated. The propaganda continued to be repeated on the Discovery Channel and History Channel and other movies. So now the average person is convinced that instead of the actual dinosaur that you see on the screen really being just something, the figment of our imagination. I'm sure it didn't look like this. I don't know what it looked like, but I'm positive it didn't look like that. Positive. Why? It's just, it doesn't make any sense. But instead of us saying, oh yeah, you know what? The dinosaur really kind of looks like uh, iguana. What do they think? They think that the iguana is the proof that the dinosaur existed. Such is our warped mentality that we have today. And this warped mentality is simply when we take our mind off the target. We take our mind off of the key, the important emit. I see that today there's a lot of confused religious people, but I don't blame them. And the reason why is because the teachers themselves are confused. 
someone sent me a clip of a very well-known rabbi last night telling young kids, telling young kids that, yeah, it's possible that some of the things in the Torah didn't happen. And he's quoting the Rambam's Moreh Nevuchim, the most complicated, difficult book that the Rambam and probably anybody has ever written in history because it's very difficult for even the Chachamim to understand what the Rambam implied in certain aspects of Moreh Nevuchim. Such an extent that many of the Chachamim said it's better off people don't learn it. The Rambam, as great as he was, which we base our entire halacha on the Rambam, whether you're Ashkenazi, Sephardi, whatever you are, everyone knows who the Rambam is, Kodesh Kodeshim. But Moreh Nebuchim, many of the Chachamim throughout the generation said, you know what, that one, it's better off you don't study it. Why? Because unless you're at a very, very high level, it's not only you're not going to understand what he says, but it can actually turn you into a heretic overnight. It's that confusing, some of the things. But you're seeing someone that's a big chacham, wrote many books, very well known, teach young teenagers, no older than 14, 15, 16 years old, some of the most difficult things in the Morena Bukhim without really giving them the appropriate explanation of what it really means, because he himself doesn't understand it. Hence the reason why we're such a confused generation. That's why the Mishnah in Avot says, Chachamim tizaru bidivrechem. Chachamim, you must be careful with your words because your words can lead, if they're misunderstood by your students, can lead your children, can lead your students to Gehenom instead of Ganedin. You have a bunch of Frum kids thinking, oh, you know what, uh, yeah, maybe if, if that's not... if." If, if it says over here that some things are not real or didn't happen or there is an opinion like that, so maybe Shabbat's not real. Maybe it didn't happen too. Maybe the Ten Commandments not real. Maybe I didn't happen too. Maybe kosher is not real. Maybe that didn't happen too. And you start picking and choosing what you want to listen to in the Torah. But why do people, why is it so common for these... Uh, modern-day American rabbis to teach you such complicated books like Moreh Nebuchim. It's literally like a common... It's, it's, it's a one after another. One heretic after another does this. Whether it's the Dweck Rasha from London or it's Goldberg or it's a, a lot of these people. You see them. One after another mentions it. This rational Jew guy that calls himself a rabbi, zoologist or something, I think he belongs in a zoo. I forgot what his name is, but he was put on cherem by the Gdole Ador. He's not allowed in any legitimate synagogue in the world. After he wrote his book, saying so many kfirah in his books, but still they invite him in big synagogues, modern orthodox. Point is that You see the confusion, it's repeated time after time, again and again. And these people see that the crowd continues to be more confused. They themselves are confused, but they continue teaching it. Why? 
Why is anybody voluntarily confusing the crowd and themselves? Why? Why would somebody want to teach a shiur and say, by the way, I don't really have an answer, but it's something to think about. To me, that's the biggest waste of life there must there has to be. To go to a shiur with no point. The guy tells you, listen, there's an opinion to do A, there's an opinion to do B, there's an opinion to do C, there's an opinion to do D, there's an opinion to do... The whole shiur is giving you the letter, the alphabets. At the end, he says, so, so far we have the entire alphabet and opinions. Something to think about. To me, biggest waste of life in the world. Why? As a Jew, I need you to tell me what to do. They put you in a leadership role. Tell me which one it is. Pick one. Don't tell me all the options. Pick one. Tell me what's the right one. What is the common opinion? What do the Gdolea adult today say, this is what I need to do? Give me something. Don't give me all the opinions. I'm not a Talmid Chacham. I'm not trying to learn the sugiah. I'm trying to figure out how to live as a Jew. But one speaker after another confuses the crowd. Why? Because that's what sells. You start talking about philosophical type of books mixed with religion like Morene Vuchim, it sells. Wow, this guy must be a genius. He, 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 he. He's dealing with something that's like out of this world. He's dealing with something that's special. He's dealing with Morena Bukhin. No one wants to touch it. Hey, go ahead. You can move the uh, chair from here and put it on the other side. He's dealing with something out of this world. Another guy says, oh, look at this guy. He gave me 27 uh, different sources that all 27 different opinions. Meaning I can make a salad out of all the opinions. But I still don't know which one is the right one though. That's what sells Abutai. Today that's what sells people want to buy confusion. And the reason why is because if the teacher is confused, that gives me a license to kill. That gives me a license to do whatever I want. Why? There must be somebody to rely on. There must be some other chacham that's confused like me that says that it's allowed to brush my hair on Shabbat. That says it's allowed to wear a mini skirt and call it a full skirt. To say it's allowed to wear Abu Dazara on my head. To say it's allowed to do all this. There must be somebody else. The guy gave me 27 opinions for whether, I, whether I'm able to uh, eat chalav and basar beyachad. Meat and milk together. 27 different opinions he gave me. There must be some 27 opinions about something else too. You just confuse the crowd. But it sells. Because people want to be confused. Because it gives them a license to kill. It gives them a license to do whatever they want. This is also why we have such a epidemic of people thinking they're Mashiach. Today I have three new Mashiachs. This week. This week I have three new Mashiachs. I'm not joking. It's funny, but it's very sad. This week I have three new Mashiachs, Rabotai. The last one that I came, I said, you cannot be Mashiach. Before I even knew the story. You cannot be Mashiach. No, 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 I'm not Mashiach ben David. I'm Mashiach ben Yosef. I said, there's no way. There's, I'm dead serious. I'll show you the text messages. 
I said, there's no way you're right. He says, why? I said, I have ten people before you. They're online. You have to wait your turn. Why do so many people think they're Mashiach? Can there be that many Mashiachs? Why do so many people think they're Mashiach? Because being Mashiach, Rabbi Ephraim says, means you could do whatever you want. Being Mashiach means you don't have to listen to anybody. You can do whatever you want. You're the boss. Meaning this hidden disease that we have in the Jewish and non-Jewish world comes from arrogance. People are convinced they're Mashiach. In reality, the only certainty there is is that they're as arrogant as Korach. How do you know whether to listen to these speakers or not today? So I told my student that told me about this rabbi that's problematic. Before I know why you like him, I can tell you why. He makes you feel good about who you are now. He tells you that you're perfectly fine. He tells you you don't need to change. He tells you you're valuable and precious and special and beautiful and wonderful and generous and you're just perfectly a tzaddik. And really, there's nothing that you you need to change, but you could if you want to. Hashem will love you the same. That's the problem. If your speaker, your rabbi, your teacher, your chavuta is telling you all of those things, they're dangerous to your soul. Because the Torah is an instruction set that we received at Mount Sinai that tells us that we all must change. We all must develop our character traits. We all must overcome our flaws. All of us have flaws. And as soon as we've perfected them, Hashem will remove us from this world. Meaning, if you're still here, you still have a lot of work to do. Which means that if you're hearing a speaker tell you, you don't have anything to do, there's something wrong with the instruction set. There's something wrong here with these instructions. Why? Because it contradicts God. God says if you're here, you have a lot of work to do. So even though it says, where the righteous and the wicked could look the same, you could only determine whether it's the same or not after the words come out of their mouth. Because if it wasn't for the Torah, if it wasn't for this holy instruction set we received in Mount Sinai, really, you have no argument 
to justify why stealing shouldn't be allowed. Why shouldn't I steal? Why? Because it belongs to you? So now it belongs to me. Who says? Who says that it should always belong to you? Why, you worked hard for it? Well, you know how hard it is to steal? I worked hard to steal also. You worked to go make the money to buy this nice painting. I worked really hard to break into your house and take the painting. You know how hard it is to steal? Hard work doesn't mean that you deserve anything. Plenty of people work hard and get nothing. In fact, some of the hardest workers are low labor people, just low income people. Hard labor, low income. They usually go together. In fact, if there's no instruction set, then you have no reason to tell me that suicide is wrong. No reason. No reason you could tell me that murder is wrong. Guy annoyed me. I don't like him. He made a bad comment on me on Facebook. I'm going to his house chopping his head off, putting, serving it for steak. Wait, wait, what's wrong with that? What's wrong? Why? What's, who's to tell me there's something wrong with that? He annoyed me. Why? I can't do it. Why? A guy gets all upset. His girlfriend loves him. He jumps off a bridge. What's the problem? Well, what's the problem? Plenty of people kill themselves. Why? What's the problem? Rabotai Karim, if you don't have an instruction set that tells you right and wrong, you have no right to bring children to the world. Because you have no justification for your own life. In reality, you have no idea why you're not stealing. In reality, you have no idea why you're living. You can't tell me that it's to be happy because happiness virtually doesn't exist in most people. They don't even know what it means. They don't even know what happiness is. You can't tell me it's because people, you know, because you want to succeed. Because most people don't even know how to define success. And even the ones that have material success are usually the first one to commit suicide. Without an instruction set that's divine, you cannot justify bringing kids to the world because then it would be a vicious thing to do. You have no idea why you're alive and you're bringing more people to be confused. If you're confused, you're not allowed to teach. Why? First get yourself in order. Then teach other people. Because if you're teaching while being confused, you're just going to confuse more people. If you have no reason, if you have no idea why you're alive, you should work on fixing yourself, not bringing more kids to the world. But here's the dilemma that everyone has. The dilemma is, Rabotai, that despite the fact that we can't explain why we don't steal, like Esav, despite the fact that we don't know why we don't murder, like Ishmael, despite the fact that we really don't know why we should continue living and not commit suicide as soon as something bad happens in our life, 
And despite the fact that we really don't know what's the point of bringing kids to the world if they're really only going to like us while they need us. To change their diaper, to give them a roof over their shoulder, but as soon as they hit their teenagers, Abba, I don't have time for you anymore. I don't have time for you anymore. How many secular kids do you see writing a bio about their parents? How many goys, how many goyim do you see writing a bio about their parents? What are they going to write? A eulogy. My dad lived, he made a bunch of money, he gave it to me. Buy that, thanks. That's the eulogy. His father's life, his entire father's life, three sentences. But if you see the bios that the Yavits wrote about his father, if you see the bios that the tzaddikim, what they write about their parents, books, series of books, he did this and he did this and how he did this and he did this, and just when they say their parents' name or their grandparents' name, just to say their name requires two to three sentences of how much he's righteous and he's great and he's amazing and he's this and he's that. Meaning it's Shemaim Ba'aretz. It's, it's a big difference here. But if you don't have this divine instruction, said Rabotai, there's a very, very big dilemma. You don't know why you don't steal like Esav. You don't know why you don't murder like Ishmael. You don't know why you're bringing kids to the world because you have no purpose in life yourself. You have no idea why you're still alive because life is kind of depressing when you don't have God in it. But yet, if somebody told you you have one day to live, you'd start crying. If somebody told you you have one hour to live, but if you give me all your money, I'll give you another week. You'll take it. If somebody told you I can let you live, but you're going to have to suffer forever. You'd still take it. You'd still take it. You see people suffering day and night with disease, with all types of financial headaches, all types of marriage and loneliness, loneliness while being married, loneliness while being alone. But people still have the passion to live, even though they have no idea why. No one wants to die. But no one knows why they're alive. Yet, Esav and Yaakov look the same. The one that knows the purpose of life and the one that doesn't, they look the same. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levin, this Mishnah in Avod, will give us a little bit of insights of how we can go towards the site of Yaakov and run away from the site of Esav. First and foremost, we saw that Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi did not hold back in giving us Musar by telling us that every single day a heavenly voice emanates from Mount Chorev, from Mount Sinai, proclaiming and saying, Woe to them, to the people, because of their insult to the Torah. 
right off the bat, he's rebuking everyone. He's not saying, woe to the people that this, woe to the people that, no, no. Chalidim, to this one. No, no. Woe to everyone. Woe to everyone. Why? If you're alive and the Bet HaMikdash hasn't been built, it's your fault. With your mitzvot, without the mitzvot. The Zohar Kadosh says, Malach Gavriel came to Hashem and he saw the Hashem. When are you going to bring Mashiach? When are you going to end this Geula? When? When are you going to end this whole nightmare for your kids and how they're in the exile? Hashem says when they do tshuva, like I said to the prophets, Malach Gavriel comes to Hashem and he says, Galui v'yadua, I mean, it's known to you, my master, they're not all going to do tshuva. So that means you're never going to bring Mashiach. So Hashem says, okay, so I'll have the Mashiach come when the people that deal with Torah, the religious ones, when they do tshuva. When the religious people do tshuva. Not when the secular people do tshuva. When the people that think that tzaddikin, because she has a mitpachat. When the guy that has the, the, the payers reach the floor. When the guy that's wearing a, the, the strymon and this and now when everybody look exterior, they look like they just came out of Mount Sinai. When they do tshuva, I'll bring Mashiach. Malach Gavriel comes to Hashem and says, Galui v'yadua, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. All of them, all of the religious people are going to do tshuva. Most of them don't even think they need to do it. Most of them don't even know they're sick. You want them to do to, to start taking vitamins? Do tshuva. And then the saddest part of all. Hashem says, fine. When one kehila does tshuva. One bit knesset. One bit knesset does tshuva, I'll bring Mashiach. Two thousand years, we're waiting for one bit knesset to do tshuva. Two thousand years, we're waiting for one bit knesset to do tshuva. Oy lahem labuyot shel Torah. Woe unto them who insult the Torah. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi says to us, the Torah is not something that's like a stone, chas v'shalom, or a wall, or a plant, or a dog, or... Torah is alive. The Torah is considered Hashem's daughter. Hashem told Am Yisrael, I only have one daughter. I have many children, but I have one daughter. Her name is the Torah. It's impossible for me, Hashem says this, to separate myself from the Torah. But I still need to give it to you. On the marriage we had at Mount Sinai, so all I ask is to please, wherever you go, make some room for me. Take care of my daughter. Make some room for me. 
I'll pay for everything. I'll build the castles and give you the cars and give you this and give you that. Just make a little room for me. Because I can't le- I can't be separated from my daughter. So wherever you go, I need to come. Make a little room for me. If a Boreid Barach cannot separate himself from a Torah, how much of a fool are we to decide we don't have time for Torah? Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi is trying to explain to us as the Midrash Muel says that violating the promise that we made at Mount Sinai of keeping and preserving this daughter of Hashem, keeping and preserving this holy Torah causes the mountain himself to start crying in pain at the desecration of this oath that we made. The Torah feels insulted and ignored, Rashi says, when people don't give it proper attention. The Gemara in Masichet Shabbat has an extraordinary midrash of what actually happened in Mount Sinai and heaven at the same time we got the Torah. Masechet Shabbat, page 88b, says, Before Moshe Rabbeinu went up to heaven to receive the Torah, the first thing we got is the Ten Commandments. We got the Ten Commandments. But Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, the same Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi of this Mishnah is in the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, giving us a little further detail what happened over there. It says that Kol dibur v'dibur sheyatsa mipi hakadosh baruch hu nitmale kol haolam kulo besamim. With every single statement that emanated from the mouth of Akadosh Baruch Hu, the whole world became filled with a fragrance, a beautiful smell of spices. The whole world smelled beautiful like never, never before. So it says, okay, but are you saying every... Uh, the whole world was filled with it, with every sentence. So if the whole world was filled with it the first time, what happened the second time he spoke? He filled it again, it's already full. Hashem brought a wind that made the first smell go away to redo it all over again, to renew the beautiful smell over again. Chamim asked, what's this for? Okay, it's nice. What is this? Is there a different purpose for this? So Rabbi Yosho ben Levi says, "Amar Rabbi Yosho ben Levi, dibur v'dibur sheyatzam mipi Hakadosh Baruch Hu, kol dibur v'dibur sheyatzam mipi Hakadosh Baruch Hu, yatzani shmatan shel Yisrael, shneemar nafshi yatzav b'dibro." With every single statement that emanated from the mouth of Hakadosh Baruch Hu, 
the souls of everyone, all of the Jewish people, left their bodies. Everybody died. As it says in the Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 6, that's the source, my soul departed as he spoke. Meaning Shlomo HaMelech is telling us this specific verse that he wrote, my soul departed, my soul left my body when he spoke, is Am Yisrael talking at Mount Sinai. As soon as we heard Hashem's voice, we died. So how did they hear the second if they all died? How did they hear the second thing he says? He says, this beautiful smell, this whole thing, Hashem miraculously brought their neshamot back into their bodies. But after they experienced this twice, they couldn't handle it anymore. They told Moshe, you go up there, you listen to him, you talk to him, you get the Torah, you do whatever you got to do. We not seven ishma. We'll just, uh, we'll do and then we'll listen. We'll follow the Torah and then we'll listen to why we're even doing it. Meaning we made a deal. Why? We couldn't handle this whole experience. It was too much. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi continues and he says, When Moshe Rabbeinu ascended to the heavenly heights, meaning he went to heaven, all of the Malachi Asharet, all of the angels of God, there's trillions and trillions and trillions of them, huge giants, each one the size of a star, made of fire. They all come to Hashem. They see, who's this Moshe? They tell him, what is the, what is someone born of a woman, meaning a, a human being, doing among us, heavenly beings? What's he doing here? He doesn't belong here. Who is this? Hashem told them, he has come to receive the Torah. All of the angels receive the shock of their life. You're saying you're going to give the coveted treasured Torah that you have stored it as your treasure for 974 generations even before the world existed? You're gonna you're intending to give this to flesh and blood? What is a mortal that you should even you should even remember him, Bihlal? Meaning that Malachim were taken back because they felt it was an insult to the Torah for Hashem to give it to a human being. The Torah is so holy, so magnificent, 
It came before man. It came 974 generations before man, meaning before this world existed. Because if you look at the generation, the time that elapsed between Adam Arishon and Moshe Rabbeinu, 26 generations. Meaning from the beginning of this world until Moshe Rabbeinu, 26 generations. Meaning the Torah existed 974 generations before it's called. Originally, he was supposed to give the Torah a thousand generations after he created the world. But Hashem saw there's no way for the world to survive for that long. I'm going to destroy it many, many times over. No Torah, there's no tshuva, there's no nothing. So he had to give it maximum amount, 26, 26 generations. So what do you do with this other 974 generations that were supposed to be here? Says these were 974 generations of Reshaim. So all of those people that would have lived without the Torah for all of that time, the Gemara in Masechet Chagigah says, Hashem distributes them, a little bit of them in every generation. Every generation has a bunch of Reshaim that don't know and don't appreciate and hate Torah. The Erev Rav. Every generation. The Malachi Asharet, the angels of God, full of fire, are insulted for the sake of Torah. Who is this man that you should even consider him, they say? Who you, why would you even consider this man? Because the angels, the Mikhtab Mi'eliyahu says, have no concept of free will. It's not that they don't have free will or they do have free will. They have a different type of measurement system. They're not absolutely robots like people describe because we've seen proofs that they do things that are against and then they get punished for it. But at the same token, they don't have free will like us. They don't have a yetzara. But the angels, the Mikhtab Mi'eliyahu says... Rav Desler, Allah Shalom, says that they're critical of a person even if he chooses to do the right thing. Me, tell him, listen, I don't feel like going to be Knesset. Ah, you know what? I'll go, I'll go. Ah, I don't feel like keeping Shabbat. Ah, you know what? I'll keep it, I'll keep it. Ah, I don't feel like uh, watching my eyes. Okay, no, no, I'm not going to look today. Meaning, you, you overcame your Yetzirah. You overcame your Yetzirah. The angels in Shammai, like, shh, look at this guy. Look at this Rasha. What Rasha? It's Sadiq. No, I just, I went to Beknesset. Watch my eyes. No! You even considered going against God? You considered it? Meaning to the angels, they don't, they don't understand. What, why would you, like, how could you consider going against the Shem?
Why do you even struggle? They asked themselves. Why do you struggle doing the right thing? How could you have even entertained the notion for a second that the shekel is emet? I tried to explain to people today and recently it's been a few times already that when a Baal Tshuva does Tshuva, a serious Baal Tshuva does Tshuva, his biggest dilemma is not himself. His biggest dilemma is his surroundings. His parents, his wife, her husband, the kids. And the reason why because the Baal Tshuva that was really woken up has a very, very big dilemma. He cannot relate to who he was before he woke up. Because as soon as you saw the Emet, as soon as, you could live a lie your whole life. 20 years, 30 years, 40, it doesn't make a difference. But the second you see the truth, the lie becomes disgusting to you. The lie becomes disgusting, repulsive to you. You cannot handle it. It's like, I can't believe people believe this nonsense. What do you mean, buddy? You were believing it for 25 years. What do you mean you can't believe? He goes, yeah, but it's so clear. I'm an idiot. I don't know why they're doing it. Like you're saying, you, you don't have no problem insulting your past self because it's not you anymore. But you cannot relate to the lie anymore. It's disgusting to you. But that's the problem. Why is that the problem? Because you forget that you're the only one that saw the truth. They're still living a lie. So although you're so excited about Shabbat and kosher and tarat mishpacha and learning and this and that, you're upset at everybody else that still wants to go to the beach and the casino and cheat and lie and be modest. You're, you hate them and you're angry at them. And I can't believe them. And a shame. And I hate them. Whoa, 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 relax. Hold on a second. That was you. That was you. That's how it feels like to be an angel. A Baal Tshuva, that's how it feels like to be an angel. The angel has no concept of why you think the way you think. Because all he sees is true. All he sees is true. Person that saw the emet for the first time and it woke him up, he can't look at the lie even anymore. It's disgusting to him. But if he doesn't learn Musar and learn how to treat this newfound knowledge, he can create more damage than good, which we'll talk about. The Gemara continues in a debate between the angels and Moshe Rabenu continues as the angels of God scared the life out of Moshe Rabbeinu. He doesn't want to answer them. He's in shock. Each one of them is the size of Pluto. Each one of them is the size of uh, Mars. And it's full of fire. Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't answer. Hashem says to him, Amar lo HaKadosh Baruch Hu LeMoshe, Echzir lahem tshuva. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Moshe, give them an answer. 
No. They ask you a question. Why should I give you the Torah? They ask you a question, Moshe. Give, why should I give you the Torah? Amar lefanav, mityare ani shema yisrefuni bahevel, siftehem. Master of the universe, I fear that if I reply to them, they're going to burn me with the breath of their mouth. Moshe doesn't see himself as Moshe. He doesn't, he doesn't know why he's there, Bechlad. The humblest man of all time. Amar lo, echoz bekisei kvodi, vechazor lahem tshuva. Hashem says to Moshe, take hold of my throne of glory and give them an answer. Meaning, I got your back. And the Chachamim say, that was the answer. Why is that the answer? Because over here, Hashem gave the answer saying that only man can be in heaven and earth at the same time. Angels can't. But then Moshe Rabbeinu starts the argument with the angels and he says to them, Ribbono shel olam, Torah she'atano tenli, Master of the Universe, the Torah that you're, you're giving me, what's written in it? Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Asher Otseticha Me'eretz Mitzrayim. I am Hashem your God, who has taken you out of the land of Egypt. That's the first commandment. Amalein, he says to the angels, you guys, you heard this? It says he took me out of Egypt. You guys went, came out of Egypt? It says in the Torah, I'm God that took you out of Egypt. Were any of you in Egypt? Last I checked, you weren't slaves in Egypt. So obviously the Torah is not for you. You didn't work for, you weren't uh, slaved, enslaved by Paro. So should the Torah be given to you if it's a, uh, you weren't enslaved, it says that there will be a mistake in the Torah. Obviously it's not for you. What else is written in it? Lo Elohim acherim. There shall not be other gods. You shouldn't have any other gods. Do any of you worship any other uh, any other gods? Do you even have the ability to worship other gods? Obviously not. Obviously, it's not written for you. Remember the Shabbat and sanctify it, the fourth commandment. Do you engage in any labor that you need to uh, rest on Shabbat? You guys, what do you guys do on Shabbat? You guys make steaks, shishlik, what do you do on Shabbat? What else is written that Moshe says? Lotisa, don't take my name in, in, in vain. Since this has to do with business, don't use Hashem's name to make deals and you know that you're a liar. Any of you have any businesses? You guys work in a flea market maybe, you have an app, you sell an app in the iTunes store. What do you guys do for business? What do you guys do for work here? She gives them one after another proof. Torah doesn't belong to them. You don't have a Yetzirah. You weren't in Egypt. Miyad kol echad ve'echad ne'esa lo'ev. 
immediately every one of the angels saw the humility of Moshe Rabbeinu and became a friend. Even the Malach HaMavet himself. Gave, and each one of them gave him a gift, including the Malach HaMavet. But now, this Holy Torah, you see the Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi continues and he says, after Moshe Rabbeinu left, the Malach HaMavet came, he says, Ba'a Satan ve'amar lefanav, Rebunah Sha'olam, Torah, Echani, Master of the Universe. Where's the Torah? Where's the Torah? Wait, you weren't just here. Did you just see Moshe Rabbeinu just took it? So he told him, no, Moshe, Moshe has it. goes to Moshe. Where's the Torah? Goes, I don't have anything. <laughs> it's not, I'm not at a level to have this such a thing. Hashem gets in the mirror and says, Moshe, you're fibbing. I just gave you the Torah. You're fibbing, Moshe. And he says, Hashem, you have coveted this treasured Torah that is a delight to you every day. Should I flatter myself that you gave me the Torah? Like, it's really mine. It's your Torah, Hashem. Meaning that Moshe Rabbeinu was so humble that he couldn't even say, it's my Torah. What my Torah? Who am I, Bechlal? Hashem says, you're so humble, I'm going to name the Torah after you. That's why it's called Five Books of Moses. But still we have an issue here. Yetzirah was confused what's happened with this Torah. So the explanation the Chachamim explain the Marsha, the Chatam Sofer is that in reality the Torah is something that's called Chemda. Chemda means something that's like treasured or coveted by Hashem. But in many places in the Torah, Hashem, we call the Torah Kli Chemda, meaning the essence of Torah. Why we call it essence of Torah? Because what we actually received, what Am Yisrael actually received at Mount Sinai was the essence of Torah, not the full Torah. The Chemda, we couldn't handle. The full Torah, we couldn't handle while still being alive in this world. The Chemda, we couldn't handle. That's what you're going to learn, Olam Allah, Be'ezat Hashem. We got the essence of Torah. So the Malach HaMavet was confused. Wait a minute, if you're only giving them the Kli Chemda, the essence of Torah, Where's the Chemda? How come the Chemda is missing? How come the Torah is missing? He says, no, I gave it to Moshe. I gave him the whole thing. He's the only one that can handle the whole thing. The rest of them, what he's going to teach them is the Kli Chemda. 
What Moshe Rabbeinu got was everything, because he can handle it. The rest of them can't. So he'll just teach them what they can handle. This Rabotai gives us a little bit of an understanding of the humblest man that ever lived and how we had a mamash, Malach Hashem living among us. And people want to compare Moshe Rabbeinu to some recent rabbis that died. Or even say, he's the Moshe Rabbeinu, he's this one. Everybody keeps saying, no, he's like Moshe Rabbeinu. He's the Gilgul of Moshe Rabbeinu. Everybody's rabbi is Moshe Rabbeinu. Spoke to Hashem panim ul panim, face to face, like we speak to each other, and you're comparing them to regular people. We couldn't even handle the Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu got. But the point is, Rabotai, is that the angels felt that giving, initially, giving the Torah to man was an insult to the Torah because it's so holy. But they only agreed once they saw that Moshe Rabbeinu knew what's in it, valued it, and promised that Am Yisrael will dedicate himself to studying it. Which is the reason why Yeshua ben Levi says that when a person does not study Torah, that batkol, that heavenly voice that comes out of Mount Chorev is a rebuke to that person. Now, Hasid Yavitz, if you remember, I told you a little bit about him some months ago. I'll tell you some more tonight, Be'ezot Hashem. I brought actually his bio today with me. It has a story out of this world. The Hasid Yavitz, Allah Shalom, says that when a person does not learn Torah, There's a spiritual rebuke. What is it like? He says it's compared to a servant that his king told him, listen, go count. Go into my treasure chest over there and count as many gold coins as you can in two hours. And whatever you count is yours. But this servant, this fool, instead of going to count all the coins and changing his life, and maybe becoming richer than the king, what does he do? He says, yeah, I'm kind of tired. Kind of tired. And I'm really, I actually, I want to play with straw instead. I like straw. So I'm going to take a nap, and when I wake up, uh, I'll, I'll play with my straw a little bit. And if I have any time left, then I'll go. I'll go and uh, count the coins. The Yavit says, "That's a person in this world. That's a Jew in this world who does not learn Torah. The servant's foolishness didn't change the value of the gold. The gold stayed the same. The Torah stays the same whether you study it or not. It's holy. It's kodesh kodeshim. Whether you study it or not." But the conduct of this fool condemned himself. Similar to somebody who doesn't study Torah 
he's forsaking the Torah, and it indicates simply that he's so ignorant, he has no idea what he's dealing with. He has no idea this is the treasure. Rav Hirsch, Rav Shalom says that Mount Sinai is mentioned here because it stands as the silent rebuker. Ceaselessly emitting a resounding call saying, it's not the Torah, but only man who will suffer loss and distress because he has despised and insulted the Torah. So Rav Hirsch says, the Torah itself is not going to change whether you study or not. But one thing that's going to change is the level of suffering you're going to have in your life. The more Torah you have, the less suffering you have. The less pain you have. And even if you have suffering, if you have a lot of Torah, you don't view it as suffering. You view it as gifts. Like Rabbi Eliezer ben Rabbi Shimon, he would call the suffering his friends. He saw and understood the value of suffering that the Gemara says that every night before he went to sleep, he would call his friends, come my friends, come my dear friends. And his entire body became full of boils and, and abscesses. They would have to change the sheets to his bed 60 times per night because of so much blood and infection on it every night. But he would call it on himself. And then in the morning, go, go my dear friends. I have to go learn Torah. When his wife found out that he's doing it for himself, to himself, she said, I've wasted my, all the money that my parents gave me on this. You're causing it to yourself. I felt bad for you. I was changing the sheets, changing the sheets, changing the sheets. We waste all our money changing the sheets, but you're doing it to yourself, bringing the suffering. If you don't stop, I'm divorcing you. He says, divorce. Go. Hashem will take care of me anyway. She left. Some time passed. She missed him. She loved him. She didn't want to divorce him. But she thought he's out of his mind. She didn't know he's Kodesh Kodeshim. She's a simple woman. She didn't know she has Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's son next to her. This one uh, can hold the whole world on his hand. She doesn't know. So she sends her son. She says, Tani, go, go talk to Abba and see maybe he changed his mind. So the kid thinks he's going to get to the house, see his father suffering, full of blood, on the floor, maybe dead. Who knows what happened to him already? If the way we left him, he's still that way, no one's changing the sheets, who knows what happened? He gets to the house, he sees the house is full of people serving him. Yes, master, yes, master, yes, master. He's like on a throne. Better than it was before. He goes back to his mother, he goes, Ima, 
Hopefully, he takes us back. He's doing better. What do you mean he's doing better? Let's go. They go. They see it. Goes, oh, honey, you're back. He expects her. He's not upset at her. You understand where she's coming from. But she doesn't understand where he came from. She's what's going on here? How does all this happen? Because I told you, Hashem's going to take care of it. He goes, well, what do you mean? How, how? So to explain to us in like human talk. How did Hashem talk? How did Hashem take care of it in human talk? Because you're like a Malach Hashem now, I understand. You're a Malach Hashem. Hashem I understand Hashem has uh, angels just working for you now, I understand. But explain to us humans, to us little ones, how did it work? He says, you see, there was a few very wealthy, rich businessmen in a ship. And as soon as you left, Hashem made a wind come to the ocean and the ship started sinking. And these three businessmen said, we, we want to go visit Rabbi Eliezer ben Rabbi Shimon. And if Hashem gives us the merit to survive this wind, this tornado, we dedicate all of our money to go help him learn Motorah. Immediately, the wind stopped. Immediately the ocean calmed down. They went directly to the coast. There was Rabbi Shimon. That one over there. They saw Rabbi Shimon. Blood everywhere. This. What? What's going on? They started getting people. It became a factory just to serve Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon's son. Rabbi Eliezer. The question is why did he bring all of this on himself? Why did many of the tzaddikim bring suffering on themselves because they understood their value. They understood that there is exponential value that's beyond their understanding for even a little bit of suffering you have in this world. So much so that the Torah tells us that if a person knew how much his suffering is worth, he would pray to get more suffering. Now I don't recommend praying to get more suffering in our generation, simply because most people can't handle the suffering they don't pray for. So until you stop complaining about suffering you have already naturally, don't pray, don't be a superhero. Because chas v'shalom, your prayer gets, gets, gets to you and you can't handle it. Now the, the Mishnah continues that whoever does not occupy himself with Torah is called Nazuf. Nazuf means rebuked, but the more precise translation would be banished. The Midrash Muel says Nazuf really is banished, as if a person does not that does not learn Torah does not make time to learn Torah every single day, his soul is considered as if he wasn't on Mount Sinai. As if he is spiritually excommunicated from Am Yisrael. There's no way he's part of Am Yisrael and he doesn't want to learn Torah. That doesn't make any sense. doesn't make any sense. You don't learn Torah, you're not part of Am Yisrael. Why? Why is such Harsh words. 
The Tiferet Israel says, a person who doesn't study Torah cannot fulfill the demands properly. Cannot fulfill what the Torah says. And if you knowingly are not learning Torah, meaning that you're going to violate the Torah, you are now considered what the Sefer Dvarim's chapter 27, verse 26 says, Arul. There's a verse written about a person who doesn't learn Torah every day. What is this? Uh, what does this verse say? Cursed is the one who will not uphold the words of this Torah and perform them. And the entire nation said, "Amen." We were mount. We were two mountains. Six tribes on the right side. Six tribes on the left side. Tribe of Uven says, "Cursed are the people who don't learn Torah." The entire nation said, "Amen." Meaning you were Mount Sinai over there. You said Amen. Meaning a person has learned Torah is guaranteed to live a cursed life. His entire life is cursed. Everything is painful. Everything is difficult. Everything is miserable. Nothing works out. Yeah, but he has a lot of money. Okay, so he got the money, but uh, he doesn't have anything else. Yeah, but he has the wife. Yeah, he has the wife, but three kids died. Yeah, but he has the kids and the wife and he has the money. Yeah, but he's depressed and he takes alcohol and uh, other types of drugs to, to get himself out of depression or to get himself deeper in depression and so on and so forth. He doesn't even know the definition of happiness. He still thinks he can buy stuff to make himself happy. He has a purposeless life. He can't wait to become a tree one day. His goal in life is maybe to walk around Legos or something. He has no idea why he's alive. That's a cursed life. And it's the worst curse in the entire Torah. It's called Ahu. Who got this curse? The snake. A person that doesn't learn Torah is called Ahu. That's why the Midrash Shmuel continues and says such a person is excommunicated as if he wasn't part of Am Yisrael. And the Sfat Emet says that such a person has such a sorry, this is his words, such a sorry state of existence because he's deaf to the heavenly voice that's rebuking him. Hashem is talking to him, the Sfatimit says, and he's not listening. Why? How does Hashem talk to us? Through the Torah. Through the Torah. A lot of people got upset at some things that we said, like, oh, why? You became so smart, you know what God says? Well, that's actually exactly what the Sfatimit is saying. You want to know what God said? You know what you wanted to know what God wants? Learn Torah. If you want to learn what God said and what God wants, learn Torah. He's gonna to talk to you through the Torah. We could all read the same exact paragraph and understand different things from it. We're all gonna understand the basic meaning. But the thing that will be highlighted for each one of us will be different. Why? That's the message that's personalized to you from God. 
And next time you read it, next week, next month, next year, you can read the same message, the same exact paragraph, but get a different message, a different significance. It will relate to you in a different way. That's the divinity of the Torah. But sometimes you see people learn Torah, sometimes they even learn Torah in yeshiva or kolel or so on, but in reality, as soon as problems arise, they break down and uh, as if they never learn anything. As soon as there is issues in life, all bets are off. As soon as a test arrives, they already failed me without even trying. I'll have on some of this. You see, certain people learn Torah, but they teach people mistakes. How's it possible? You learn Torah. We learn the same book. You learn Parashat Shavua, you're teaching people how to become a heretic. We learn Parashat Shavua, we teach people how to do Tshuva and undo the heresy that you did. How could it be? Two people learn Torah, two different messages, but to that extreme, how could it be? The Mishnah continues and says, it uses a verse from Proverbs, Nezim Za'av Be'af Chazil, Isha Yafa V'saratam. As it says in Proverbs 11.22, like a golden ring in a swine's snout is a beautiful woman who turns away from a good judgment. So Chamim explained that everyone understands that as precious and valuable and beautiful as a golden ring can be, as soon as you put it in the nose of a disgusting pig, the ring is no longer valuable. The ring is now disgusting. Just like the pig. But they're comparing it to a woman who's beautiful but turns away good judgment, meaning the most despicable, disgusting, repugnant thing on earth is seeing a beautiful woman, the Ruach Haim says, that has terrible midot. Because technically... The beautiful exterior, the beautiful beauty of a person is meant to symbolize a beautiful interior. Hashem made a person look like an angel. Malach Hashem. No flaws, no marks, no scars, no nothing. Beautiful, perfect. In essence, it's supposed to symbolize how perfect they are on the inside. The exterior of how you represent yourself is supposed to represent the interior. People walk around with suits when they want to go to business meetings. Why? Because they want to tell you, I mean business. But if a guy comes to a business meeting with shorts and a tank top, unless you know for sure he's a billionaire but also doesn't know how to dress, 
You're not going to even look at this guy. You're going to give him, you know, some money because you think he's homeless. Guy shows up to a $20 million deal with flip-flops and a tank top. Tell the guy, hey, did you get to bring the pizza? Did you bring the pizza? Who are you? You're not, you know, you're not a serious business person. Sometimes you see people like this show up to shul. Show up to shul with tank top and shorts and flip-flops. You're coming to talk to God with flip-flops and a tank top. You should be ashamed of yourself. You wouldn't go see some president or some human king like that. If Trump came to your house, you put on a three-piece suit. If Obama came to your house, you put on a four-piece suit and maybe a bodysuit too so he doesn't shoot you. But Hashem comes, you're wearing a tank top. People come to shoe like this. The exterior is supposed to represent the interior. The problem is, Rabotai, many of us are fakers. You see that the exterior looks amazing many times, but it doesn't match the interior. The guy comes to the Bitkneset with a special coat and a special string so he can tie it in the middle to make sure that he follows the Minaga Votenu to separate the bottom from the top, which has a source in the Gemara, by the way. And he fixes his jacket and he fixes his beard and he fixes his hat and he fixes his this and he fixes that and he doesn't shut up the whole time when Bitkneset talking to his friend about something. He forgets to pray. But he looks good. Sometimes you see a woman walking out with the kisui rosh and she's modest and she looks gross. Wow, dude, ah, everything is perfect. Ah. But she doesn't shut up in Bet Knesset and no one can hear themselves even think. Because she wants to make sure everyone hears her laugh. Everyone hears her laugh. This laugh that some women have, Hashem Yirachem. You think it's one of the plagues from Egypt. A beautiful woman with ugly morals, the Ruach Haim says, is all the more repulsive for her physical attractiveness. The fact that she's attractive makes her repulsive. If she was ugly with ugly morals, no one's expecting anything. But the fact that she's beautiful, that Hashem gave her a gift, and she doesn't even know how to appreciate it, that's actually what makes it disgusting. Rather than being the source of honor and pride, her physical attributes are obnoxious because they're an enticement to sin. She uses the beauty that Hashem Barach has given her to make his children go to Gehenom. Hashem gave her beauty to represent beauty inside. What does she do? She takes all of his children and she takes them Gehenom, Gehenom, Kafakela, Gehenom and Kafakela. Genom, Genom, Genom. She kills all of his kids. 
Why? She wants to make sure they whistle at her every time she walks. She wants to make sure every everybody tries out the village bicycle. She wants to make sure that, you know, everybody knows who she is. Physical beauty, the Ruach Haim continues, should be a, a constant symbol of spiritual and moral beauty and harmony to which one could should aspire. Like a swine degrades, a pig degrades, the beautiful golden nose ring, so is the woman who employs her charm and beauty in a morally repugnant fashion. In so many words, beauty is supposed to indicate inner moral beauty. But when it doesn't, the beauty without morals is considered disgusting and repulsive to Hashem. Every time you see a woman walking around immodestly, you should know, technically your reaction is supposed to be the reaction that Hashem has. The Gemara says that Rabbi Akiva was once hosted by a king. And the king wanted to respect Rabbi Akiva. Now this king was a goy. He didn't know right or left. He didn't know anything about Torah. So he thought he's going to host Rabbi Akiva, Kodesh Kodeshim, like he hosts all of the other people. What did he do? He sent a few prostitutes to his room. The few hours later, all of the prostitutes ran to the king, telling him he doesn't stop throwing up. What did you send us to? The king thought that maybe he offended Rabbi Akiva by sending him women that weren't attractive to him, even though these were the most attractive people he could find. So he came to Rabbi Akiva. He said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, they weren't attractive to you. He says, it's disgusting. It makes me vomit to see an immodest woman to the point where I vomit. Why does Rabbi Akiva vomit when he saw a promiscuous woman, an immodest woman, because we're supposed to be like God. When Hashem sees one of His children, immodest, when Hashem sees one of His daughters, promiscuous, He finds her disgusting to the point where He vomits. We're supposed to vomit too. You see an immodest woman, you're supposed to vomit. Looking will be an unfortunate event because it will cause you to vomit. So imagine we had a pure mind to the extent where instead of having the filthy thoughts that men have when they see something immodest, what do we do? We vomit. People will think you're crazy, but Hashem would say, Kadosh. People will say you're crazy, but Hashem says it's Kadosh. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi was so holy that his entire life, the Gemara says, Hashem didn't show the rainbow one time. The rainbow didn't show one time in his entire life. Why? Because the rainbow is symbolic of the deal 
that Hashem made with Noach, that he's not going to destroy the world with a flood anymore. But he said it's going to show any time really I would have destroyed the world. Meaning any time you actually see a rainbow, you're not allowed to tell people, oh, go look, go look, 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 look. It's not, you're not allowed. It's a sin from the Torah. Why? Because technically the rainbow is, is symbolizing that if it wasn't for the deal that Hashem made with Noah, he'd destroy the world right now. But when Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi was alive, he didn't show the rainbow one time. So does that mean there was no homosexuality when Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi was alive? Does that mean that no one was a sinner when he was alive? Does that mean that everyone was tzaddikim? It's not possible. Why? Because everyone was tzaddikim. Mashiach would have come. So what does it mean? It means, Rabotai, that the holiness that Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi brought to the world, the Kedusha that he brought to the world, balanced out all of the law, all of the evil in the world. Don't expect your whole world to change. You change. You change. You change, the world will change. You keep saying everybody else is going to change, everybody else is Raim, everybody else is evil. You're just like them. Chasid Yavitz continues and he says, just like the pig's ugliness and stench cannot be camouflaged with a golden ring in its snout, a woman's physical beauty cannot conceal her terrible midot. In the same way that man was created in a godly image, a person should hide their face in shame if they don't nurture this godly image by studying Torah. Because nothing can disguise the spiritual ugliness of a wasted soul. Hasid Yavid says that a person that arrives to Shamaim without Torah, there's nothing uglier than him. Nothing uglier than him. Nothing. Meaning, it doesn't matter what you consider. You could say Hitler murdered six million Jews and millions and millions of others. You say this one, you can say all the things that are terrible people in history. But he says a person doesn't learn Torah, a Jew doesn't learn Torah, is even more ugly. Why? Because he had the potential to be Mashiach. He was given the potential to be Moshe Rabbeinu. And he wasted it. Hitler was never given the potential to be Moshe Rabbeinu. He was never given the potential to be Mashiach. But you were. That's what makes it more repugnant. That's what makes it more disgusting. Such a waste. The saddest thing in the world is to see a bunch of wasted talent. I've seen so much wasted talent in my life. It's very, very sad every time you think about one of these stories. Whether it was in sports or in business or in life. You usually see these young kids literally kill themselves. And they had so much talent, so much, so many gifts. 
that they simply didn't know what to do with. Hashem gave us the biggest gift in history, but we simply don't know what to do with it. And the reason why is because we don't realize that it's even a gift. One of the biggest problems that Arab Yagen Allah Shalom used to call the biggest disease hurting the religious world today is very different than the disease that's hurting the secular world. In the secular world, the biggest disease is ignorance. People simply don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They don't know why they're alive, and they don't know why they should die. They don't know why they got married, and they don't know if they should get divorced. They don't know if they should have kids, and they don't know what to do with the kids after they have them. People are simply ignorant. They have no strategy whatsoever. And even the ones that pretend like they have a plan really don't know what they're doing. I met plenty of them. When push comes to shove, we have no idea what we're doing. But you would think that the people that have the Torah as an instruction set, meaning they have the map, they would be doing better. They have the map, they have the directions. Chassid Yavid says, they have a different problem, they have a different disease. Arabi again actually said, what's the, what's the disease? The disease is, they got used to it. The prophet Ezekiel says to Am Yisrael that at the time of the third Bet HaMikdash, Hashem will implement a very strict rule when it comes to the Bet HaMikdash. What is this rule? In chapter 46 of the book of Ezekiel, verse number 9, it says, It says, Translation. The prophet Ezekiel says, but when the people come before Hashem, during the appointed days, meaning the Shloshtam Regalim, the three holidays, when they come visit the Bet HaMikdash, they have to follow a very, very strict rule. What's this rule? Whoever comes from the northern gate to prostrate himself shall go out by the southern gate. And whoever comes by the southern gate should go out by the northern gate. He shall now return the way that he got into. Now the Beth HaMikdash is not exactly small. So if you parked your car in the northern gate, 
and you went and prayed to Hashem, you want to go home. You got dinner, you got plans, you got stuff to do. So you don't want to waste time walking around to the other exit of the huge building to go all the way to the other side and then all the way around. And then, oh, let me just go back and say, I, I parked right next to the entrance. I made sure to get a seat right next to the door. So right after Yom Kippur, I'm out. First guy to eat. Torah says not allowed. You got in, in the northern gate, you must leave on the other side, the farthest point from where you started. The Hasid Yavid says, why is the Torah giving you such a peculiar rule? What does Hashem care which gate you leave from? And the Yavid says, because Chas Shalom, you would leave in the same gate that you entered, and the walls of the Beta Mikdash will become to you like the walls of your house. Meaning, you'll get used to by simply using the same gate twice in a lifetime. You may never go back to the Beta Mikdash again. Maybe it's a once in a lifetime trip. You may never be there again. He says, even then. Chas v'shalom, you see the same wall of the Bet HaMikdash twice and get used to it thinking like it's your house. Now people simply don't understand when we talk about tzaddikim, we talk about the people that learned Torah and what they sacrificed, they think that these people are like them. When you mention Rambam or the Yavits, or Rabbi Akiva, or Moshe Rabbeinu, people either can't relate at all, or they can relate too much. Meaning, to the extent where they think that we were just like them. This is one of the problems that we have, and not understanding what we're dealing with. The Yavits wrote some, a book which was an autobiography, his own life, which I told you a little bit about some time ago. It's called Megillat Sefer. And in the book, he tells you from the beginning where he came from, a line of tzaddikim, his father, Chacham Tzvi, was Kodesh Kodeshim, his grandfather, Kodesh Kodeshim, Rabbi Benjamin Ashkenazi, Zak. They would call him Zak, Rabbi Zak. Holy to such an extent that he created a golem. What's a golem? Golem is he took a bunch of clay and he put life into it. And turned this being, which was very, very big, huge, to be a servant. How? He took the Shema Kadosh, name of Hashem, put it on his forehead. And from that moment on, 
It served him. But Rabbi Eliyahu Baal Shem saw that this golem was becoming very, very powerful because of this name. He became afraid of him. Immediately, he took the name off and this giant thing, size of a... Eight, nine, ten feet tall became clay again. Didn't like stop working like he took the batteries out. It became what it started as. Now his son, the Yavit's father, was one of the giants in his generation. But when we say giant today, people think, oh yeah, he probably knows a few books by heart and uh, maybe he wrote a few books. People disrespect rabbis like they do sports players. So the Yavitz from almost 300 years ago writes this story. He says, from Venice, my father continued to Ansbach where there was an unseemly incident with a well-known, wealthy man. This wealthy man wealthy Jewish man requested that my father permit him to contract a marriage prohibited by the Torah as second-degree incest. How could he have the audacity to ask the Gdolado, ask the biggest rabbi in the world to make it allowed? Because he had succeeded by financial consideration in persuading some of the local rabbis to release him from this prohibition. And a few of these rabbis signed and release, signed the release after receiving receiving handsome gifts. Meaning, bribery is not something that was just created today. Sellouts is not something that was just created today. People that are doing deals, these so-called rabbis that are doing deals with the Christian world, it's not new. The rabbis today, rabbis today, the rabbi from London, the head rabbi of London, has a partnership with the Christians. He's teaching Christianity in Jewish schools now. He's teaching Christianity. He's bringing pastors and priests to his schools to Jew- to teach Jewish kids. Curriculum, like a whole program. Meaning, Goldberg is like a little baby, Rasha, next to him. Goldberg wanted to bring the guy for a lecture. Put a thousand families in danger. The Rasha from London is putting entire communities in danger. Tens of thousands of people. Why? All of the kids are going to school. They say, if it's in school, it must be true. If it's in school, it must be approved. If it's in school, it must be good. The head rabbi, the head rabbi, 
You can't say, oh yeah, no one really holds by him. He's the head guy. What do you think? This is for free. You think he's not printing money and uh, has a printing machine in his house from all the Christian world? You think any of these missionaries are not printing money? You're never going to see one missionary broke. It doesn't exist. It's an oxymoron. People want to sell their mothers for money. You think they're not going to sell God? This is nothing new. But in those days, we had unshamed. We had unshamed. The Gemara in Masechet Chagigah, page 14a, goes over a verse in Jeremiah, chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. It says, When did Hashem decide to destroy the Bet HaMikdash? When was the official time He decided? That's it. I've had it. I'm done. Hundreds of millions of people died. When was that moment that Hashem decided? On Mondays and Thursdays, every Jew reads this. On Emuna Avadu. Men of faith are lost. In your Sidur, you read this on Mondays and Thursdays. The Gemarayim Masechet Chagah, page 14a. The minute there were men of faith ceased to exist. So Gemara says, what do you mean? People didn't believe in God? No. Not that. People didn't believe in telling the truth. No one was willing to tell the truth. No one was willing to fight for the truth. No one was willing to die for the truth. No one wanted to rebuke anymore. In the minute that the people that had knowledge of Torah decided they're not going to rebuke, Hashem saw none of them are going to rebuke anybody. He says that means there's no one is going to be able to do tshuva without rebuke. Without rebuke, without telling people you must do tshuva, without telling people you must do tshuva, without telling people you must do tshuva, no one's going to do tshuva. And the minute Hashem said, and He saw, no one's doing it, there's no point in the world. I have to destroy it. There's no one's going to do tshuva. The only way they're going to do tshuva is if I hit them. Tshuva comes in one of two conditions. Either the nice way or the painful way. The nice way is the rabbi yells at you a little bit. Tells you start, start keeping Shabbat. Start treating people with some uh, dignity. Stop, uh, you know, have a filthy mouth. And so on and so forth. The rabbi just uses words to break your heart a little bit. That's the nice way. The other way, Hashem does it. But He doesn't talk. At least not to us. He breaks legs. He brings disease. He brings floods. Earthquakes. Cancer. Accidents. Crash. Financial crash. Life crash. Heart crash. Everything crash. There's no limitation. Three hundred years ago, we had some 
men of truth still alive? How do we know we read about them? The Yavit says that one of these filthy rich people was able to convince all of the fakers to sign, to release him from one of the mitzvot in the Torah. But because there was such great respect for my father, because there was such great respect for the Yavit's father by the community, this rich man wanted him to subscribe to it also. That was the official stamp of approval. He wanted to shake my father's hand on the assumption that he was agreeable. My father's dismissed him with a powerful rebuke because he had the effrontery, the audacity to make such an improper request. Meaning you actually think is a chance I'm going to shake your filthy, disgusting, repulsive hand to make a sin against the Shem because of money? Yeah, but they're going to fire you now. You're going to be born on Chem as a rabbi. You're no longer the Gdolador. You're now the Ktanador. They're going to call you Asha. They're going to hate you. They're going to this. They're going to that. Who thinks about stuff like that? If you're Ishemet, you don't take those things into consideration. He says the outcome of this incident is well known. The man insisted and married the woman anyway. That was prohibited to him. And immediately after they got married, he was struck with a severe paralysis. where he was unable to pursue a normal marriage relationship. Half of his body stopped working, immediately after the marriage. And the Yavitz HaKadosh says, this was a great Kiddush Hashem. For it is indeed quite evident that any infringement on the rulings of our sages carries a more severe penalty than an infraction of an act prescribed by the Torah. Meaning going against the rabbi is even worse than the Torah. For we daily observe people flagrantly transgressing the Torah, robbery, usury, extortion, false oaths. But the Holy One blessed is He, shows forbearance and suffers the insult to Himself in silence and does not exact punishment in this world. On the contrary, he pays the sinners their reward to their face to cause them to perish, as we see in, Pasha, in Deuteronomy, Parashat Vaitchanan. But regarding the infringement of the prohibitive measures and ordinances of the rabbis, he's not so liberal or patient, the Yavit says, for punishment is not delayed. This is to indicate how beloved the rabbis are to him, the sages are to him, for all of their words are like coals of fire. Hence, we often find that God acts more stringently concerning the reverence due to the righteous than to himself. You, the reader, will understand this fact more clearly 
as we continue with our narrative, that one who transgresses any ruling of our sages ultimately suffers either an untimely death, poverty, terrible sufferings which are far worse than death. This is in the end of chapter 2 in Megillat Sefer. He called the paralysis of another Jew a Kiddush Hashem. Kiddush Hashem. People want to tear my head off when I said that the massacre in Pittsburgh was a Kiddush Hashem. Oh, yeah, ah. Torah says, Mechalel Shabbat, Mot Yumat. They violated Shabbat. Hashem killed them. What are you surprised? Kiddush Hashem. When someone dies, what do you say? Baruch Dayan Emet. What's Baruch Dayan Emet? Blessed is the righteous judge. Blessed is the judge of Emet. Meaning that everything he does, it's for the right reason. He's right. No one else can say it's a mistake. Whether it's the Holocaust, or it's the Inquisition, or it's Bet HaMikdash, or it's Pittsburgh, or it's anything. Or it's the little baby that got cancer before he knows how to speak. Everything is right. He's the righteous judge. You know what you say when someone dies? You say Kaddish. What is Kaddish? Kaddish is the highest level of sanctifying Hashem's name. It gadalvit kadash shemerabba. May your name be sanctified more and more. Forever. What do you mean? You just killed you just killed your cousin. You just killed your father. You just killed your son. You just killed your neighbor. You just killed sixty seven people. What do you mean sanctify his name? Exactly. The biggest kiddush Hashem is when someone dies. Why? Hashem is fulfilling His Torah. Hashem is fulfilling His Torah, Rabotai. Why? If the person is righteous and he died, it's a big Kiddush Hashem that Hashem took him. Why? He's fulfilling His promise and taking this person to the Olam Abba that He promised him. He promised them Allah Abba fulfill mitzvot. He promised Allah Abba fulfill mitzvot to be modest, to be a tzaddikah, even though our whole family is reshaim, even though everyone she knows is uh, upside down, even though she stayed a tzaddikah, she died. Kiddush Hashem. Why? Hashem's going to give her the reward He promised her. What about the tzaddik? Kiddush Hashem. Why? He promised them Allah Abba. Now he's delivering. On the other hand, Shaddai's it's a bigger Kiddush Hashem. Why? He promised to punish him. And now the punishment begins. We don't want the Rashaim to die. We want them to live and do tshuva and become tzaddikim. But if they don't, they should learn 
what we read every Wednesday in Tefillat Shachrit. It's very, very important for every Jew to learn what we read every Wednesday at Tefillat Shachrit. Ayom Yom Revi'i B'Shabbat Kodesh. Ashir Shayu Alevi'im Omrim Al Adukhan. Today is the fourth day of the week of Shabbat, meaning everything is based on Shabbat. This is the song that the Leviim would recite at the temple platform, at the Bet HaMikdash. When? On Wednesdays. What is this song? Psalm 94. What does Psalm 94 say? El Nekamot Adonai, El Nekamot Ophia. The God of Vengeance is Hashem. The God of Vengeance appeared. He's not your buddy. You go against them for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You best be sure he will take his revenge. What do you mean? Hashem is upset? Yes. He made you in his image and you desecrated it. He gave you a Torah. You weren't even, you weren't even enough to get it and you desecrated it. He gave you all the tools and you treated, you, th- you played with it in the mud. He gave you a golden ring and you put it in, in the nose of a pig. Arise, O judge of the earth. Repay the punishment to the conceited. Doesn't say repay the punishment to the uh, Arab terrorist, repay the punishment to ISIS, repay the punishment to uh, uh, Obama, Osama. No, it doesn't say that. Who say the game, the gay pride, the ones that don't want to do tshuva? All of those people repay the punishment to them. Why? You told them once, twice, three times, four times, do tshuva. They didn't want to do it. It's time to give a punishment, Hashem. David Amelach screams to Hashem, Until when will the wicked, until when will the wicked exalt Hashem? How long you let these Rashaim, these Mechale Shabbat continue living? These atheists continue living? Either do tshuva, or take them Hashem. Yabiru idabiru atak, they express, they speak so arrogantly. They glorify all the doers of iniquity. They go and they make movie shows about uh, bank robbers. They highlight the guy that uh, stole from everybody. They highlight the woman that makes the most amount of sex crimes in the world. That's who they highlight on the, on the magazine. Your nation, Hashem, they crush. Meaning they're ruining us. Meaning we're ruining ourselves. We're ruining ourselves, Rabotai. We're ruining ourselves. People think that the Goim are the biggest problem. Yes, there's an halacha called Esav Sonet Yaakov. Yes, Esav was created to hate Yaakov. But that's not our problem. The book of Isaiah chapter 49 verse 17 says, says, 
Your ruiners and your destroyers will come from within you. The biggest poison is us. Your heritage, they afflict. They take Judaism, they take the Torah, they throw it in the garbage. The widow, the convert, they slay them. The orphans, they murder. No one wants to marry the widow. She's second hand. No one wants to invite the gear. No one wants to invite the convert. Maybe he's not really a real Jew. The orphans, they murder them. They treat people that don't have the same fortune to have both parents as if they are Baalemum. Sometimes you go to even something as simple as a playground. And you literally notice that the secular people, more times than not, are much nicer than the religious. Secular people are more nice, are nicer than the religious. I can tell you from experience. They don't need to know us. We're in a playground or outside. You see, there's everybody has kids. Secular people come. They're friendly. The kids play. This, that. Everybody's okay. No one thinks who they are. What? Not nothing. Normal. You're here to play. They're here to play. You say hello, they say hello. You're a father and a mother, they're a father and a mother. Nothing, whatever. Okay, they don't have clothes on. Okay, they don't keep Shabbat. Okay, they don't necessarily have the uh, the best of, uh, of manners in the world because they don't have the instructions at or at least they're not following them. But basic etiquette and just being a decent human being, no problem. But you see sometimes these religious people walk around with a chip on their shoulder, you would think it's a spaceship. They look at you like you're like... What are you doing here? This is like mine, my playground. Like they own the place. But they think they're religious. They're convinced they're religious. Because you look different. Because maybe you're darker than them. Or maybe you're lighter than them. Or maybe you're Ashkenazi and they're Sephardi. Or you're Sephardi and they're Ashkenazi. Or you're tall and they're short. Or whatever it is. You're not part of their clique. Later on, David Melech says, Fortunate is the man whom Hashem chastises him, gives him isurim, gives him suffering. He gives him suffering in this world. That means he's not going to have to deal with all the suffering in the next world. Hashem only gives the Musar to people that he loves. From your Torah you will teach him. You'll teach him. This person that you give him the suffering, you're going to teach him from your Torah. You're not going to teach the people who have such an easy life. Lashkit lo mimera, 
to give him rest from the days of evil. Meaning you're giving him all this suffering now in order to lower the evil from later, for all the sins he made. Later on he says, Kiyad Tzedek Yeshuv Mishpat V'acharav Lo Yeshre Lev. For until the righteousness shall return, and judgment will return, after that, all of the righteous of heart will return. The point is, Rabotai, is that this Tehilim, someone should really spend an hour or two reading it with the Midrash, with the commentary, you see what the Chazal said about it. David Melech teaches us something wonderful. Hashem is not your friend. And if you think you're going to make a joke of him and his Torah, you should know he's talking about you every Wednesday. The Mishnah continues and says, loses a pasuk from the Torah, then now is going to tell us a little bit about the reward of learning Torah. The Pasuk in Exodus 32 verse 16 says, As it says in Exodus 32:16. Tablets of the Ten Commandments are God's handiwork. And the writing, the script, was God's script engraved on the tablets. The word engraved in Hebrew is charut. Don't read the word charut as charut, engraved, but as cherut, as freedom. For you can have no freer man than the man who's engaged in the study of Torah. The Rabbi Yishuv and Levi is teaching us one of the rules of the Torah of how we find out some of the secrets. There are certain rules to the Torah of how to find certain secrets. That the ignorance that want to discount the oral Torah could never understand. As we've said in the past, one of the critical parts of the Torah, one of the critical parts of the oral Torah is the part that gives us the Nikud. The Nikud means the vowel system, the punctuation system, which teaches us how to read the Torah. Which means that when you see a scroll of a Sefer Torah in a Bet Knesset, there's no vowel system, there's no punctuation system. So the Baal Kureh, the one that's reading it on Monday, Thursday, and Shabbat, and also on Rosh Chodesh and holidays, he has to practice whatever he's going to read a few days 
before he reads it. Why? Because he has to learn it with the punctuation system. He has to take a regular chumash like we have with the punctuation system on it and know how to pronunciate every single word because if he reads it without practicing, he's probably going to make a mistake in every single sentence. And reading the parasha instead of taking, let's say, a half hour will take five hours. And a lot of embarrassment because they'll keep stopping him. You can't let him continue if he makes a mistake. Depends what the mistake is. But if he's mispronouncing the word, you have to do it again and again and again until he fixes it. But since the Torah, the written Torah is not not written with a punctuation system, with vowels, the Chachamim say that there's a rule. There's a rule called Al-Tikri. Al-Tikri means don't read. Don't read the word the way that it's read literally, normally, with the punctuation system and vowel system that it normally has. Read it a different way. Meaning that there are many words in the Torah where even though they're spelled as far as the letters themselves are identical, it's the same exact letters, but if you put the dot here instead of here, it changes the entire word. Changes the entire meaning of the word. And there is a lot of lessons that you can learn from that the sages have taught us. It says in this verse in the Torah that we're talking about the Ten Commandments being the tablets that are Hashem's handiwork and that Hashem's actual handwriting was engraved on these tablets. The word engraved, if you spell it, if you take the dot, the two dots under the word charut, the, the, actually the, uh, uh, it's not really a dot, it's like a plus sign, under the uh, the odd chet of cherut, and you take and turn it into two dots, it changes the entire word from meaning engraved to meaning freedom. Where the t- sages teach us, from here we learn that if anyone wants to have true freedom in this world, it can only come from one place. Where? From the Torah that was engraved by Hashem. It's not coming from anywhere else. It's not coming from your bank account. It's not coming from your marriage. It's not coming from your kids. It's not coming from anything else. And the problem is, Rabotai, is that people think that they need to act, you know, if they're secular or they're modern orthodox or they're liberal or all of these things, they're free. They think that if they don't follow God, that makes them free. They're free to dress how they want. They're free to speak how they want. They're free to drive how they want and vote how they want. They think that's what's freedom. But the reality is, is that all of what they do is in order to conform with their peers. They never vote the way they want. They vote the way their peers want them to. They never dress the way they want. They dress the way society tells them how to dress. They never speak the way they want. They speak the way society tells them they need to speak. In reality, the modern mentality, whether it's modern orthodox or secular completely or reform or whatever it is, it's fake freedom. People think that modern orthodoxy means more freedom, more up-to-date. 
It's the exact opposite. You've become a slave with a kippon. Instead of ending slavery 3,300 years ago, you have just admitted yourself as a slave. To what? To society. But you're going to pretend to be religious all the same. We care so much about what people think that we forget that that's what the opposite of freedom. The Ruach Chaim says, the Mishnah in Avot, chapter 3, Mishnah number 6 says, someone that takes upon themselves the yoke of Torah, part of their reward is that the yoke of government, meaning the things of the worldly responsibilities, will be removed from them. All of us have kids to take care of, and wives, and husbands, and taxes, and mortgages, and rents, and milk, and honey, and all this stuff we have to do. But interestingly enough, the extra stuff, the broken cars, the the brokenness, and the broken that, and all these things that occupy a lot more time than the basic necessities of life, that's not necessarily something we all have. You'll notice that the guy that works the most has the most amount of worldly problems too. The guy works 24 hours a day. Trying to, he's got money, he's got this, he's trying to build, he's trying to this, but he still has to take care of the, the, the broken pipe all of a sudden. All of a sudden the kid has uh, laryngitis, he has to take him to the hospital. All of a sudden he has, uh, his foot is broken. All of a sudden the car broke. All of a sudden, all types of all of a sudden's happened to him. But the other guy, same schedule, also works, also wife and kids, also this. He doesn't have it. Why? He spends his time going to shield to every night. They both have the same 24 hours. They both have the same work schedule. But one of them has their extra time spent on shield Torah and the other one on problems. The Yavitz continues and he says, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi teaches us two points in using this verse. First, he says that the tablets of the covenant, the Shteluchot Abrit, were made by God Himself, which is to teach us that the Torah's importance in His eyes is as significant as it gets. Consequently, one who scorns the Torah insults the king himself. Meaning that when a person, instead of coming to a shul Torah, he watches baseball. Instead of coming to a shul Torah, he goes to sleep. Instead of coming to a shul Torah, he goes to dinner with his wife. It's as if he's spitting the king's face. But not the king of flesh and blood that's going to die in a few years. Rather the king of kings that's eternal, that has no beginning and no end. The second thing the Yavid says is that this Pasuk teaches us that the Torah is the Jews' means of gaining freedom. One who does not use this key to his shackles 
shows that he is unredeemably chained to his passions and desires. A person who prefers to be imprisoned suffers from a slave mentality. Meaning, whether you truly have freedom or not is your choice. If you're going to use the Torah, the instruction set, then you'll be gifted the the key to freedom, real freedom. But if you don't, then you're the one that's throwing the key in the river. The key was given to all of us. You could use it to open the shackles and free yourself, or you could literally throw it in the river. And the end of this Mishnah says, "V'kol mishosek b'talmud Torah arezemit ale." And anyone who engages in the study of Torah becomes elevated. Again, a person that spends their time learning Torah every day is elevated among the rest of the considerations of the world. As the Chazonish said, Clearly that people that learn Torah regularly are like angels among men. They may look the same. Just like Yaakov and Esav looked the same. But one was Esav that has no share of the world to come. That Hashem writes a pasuk in the Torah that says, Et Esav saneti. I hated Esav. And one is Yaakov, which the angels, the Gemara says, were considered like zvuvim next to him. They were considered like flies next to him. And Hashem wrote in the Torah, it Yaakov Afti. Yaakov, I loved him. Difference between the two, both had the Torah. Esav made promises to learn, but never learned. He said he's going to come to the shul, he never came. He said he's going to keep Shabbat, he never kept. He said he's going to start doing Shabbat, he never did. Made a lot of promises. Hashem says, I hate empty promises. So I hate Esav. Yaakov, I love him. Why? He kept his promise. He kept his promise. Chazal teaches us something scary. That originally, Esav and Yaakov were actually supposed to be splitting the tribes. Six sons to Esav, six sons to Yaakov. Meaning all twelve tribes that came from Yaakov, technically six of them were supposed to come from Esav. Esav had the potential and the tools to be just like Yaakov Avinu. Meaning you could have said, Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Esav. Esav was given those tools, but he made empty promises. He made empty promises and he lost everything because of it. In Agmar Masechad Abu Dazara, page 11a, says that although he was given the opportunity to literally be the father of six of the tribes, when he lost it, it had to be given to somebody. Who? To Yaakov. Why? Because Kol Yisrael is like Chelek Lo Lama Ba. All of Israel have a share of the world to come. 
But then it says, but these are the people that don't have a share of the world to come. So what happens to the share of those people that had a share of the world to come, but then they ruined it? It's given to somebody that helped them, that tried to help them do tshuva. When you go to somebody and tell them, listen, you should keep Shabbat, listen, you should keep Tahab Mishpacha, listen, you should start working on your Midot, listen, you should do this, listen, you should do that, and they don't do it, you win anyway. Why? Their Olam has to go somewhere. If you get them to do tshuva, then you get 310 worlds. But if they lose it, then you at least get theirs. Either way you win. But that's also why it says in this Pasuk, V'kol Anyone who engages in the Talmud Torah. What does it mean, anyone? The Meiri says, anyone literally means anyone involved in it. Whether it's the teacher, or the student, or the donor, or the one that supports it or the one that's advancing the cause, anyone involved in the publicity of Hashem's Torah for the purpose of bringing his nation closer to him, he gets elevated. So sometimes, Hashem gives you a very, very busy schedule, and He gives you a gift that you have the ability to make a lot of money. And not necessarily the gift to become the next Rabbi Yashiv. Use that gift. Why? Because you can still become great. If you use that money that Hashem gives you in order to publicize Torah, of course you still need to learn. You need to know, learn how to be a Jew. But use that money instead of wasting it on nonsense. You waste it on getting people to do tshuva. Your soul will be elevated too. Your soul will be elevated too. But this also means that even if a person wasn't necessarily born with a natural talents, David Melech says, anyone that deals with Torah is going to be elevated. Meaning that even if somebody that wasn't gifted great memory, great energy, great endurance, if they try, Hashem promises to give them. As it says in Psalm 19 verse 8, the testimony of God is trustworthy making the simple one wise. Meaning even though you started as someone that was barely a Baal Moon, like almost like you were half mentally challenged, if you dedicate enough time to Torah and you're serious and you sacrifice your body for it, Hashem promises to make you Chacham. Not just good, not just passing, Chacham. And many of the Chachamim, the Malsha, the Rambam, were fools when they were born. They called the Marshad Dlat, like an empty uh, pumpkin. The Marshad, it's in practically every page of the Gemara. They called him a pumpkin. The Rambam, his own father, called him the butcher's son. He says, there's no way you're related to me. You're, it's from your mom's side. Your father was a butcher. The Rambam! Dedicated, toiled, became the Rambam. And last but not least, is a verse in the Torah in Numbers 21 19 
that says the different places that Am Yisrael went in the desert from Egypt to Eretz Yisrael, called Matana, and Nachiel, Nachiel Bamot. It was three different places. Matana, then they went from Matana to Nachaliel, and from Nachaliel to Bamot. But if you read these slightly differently, Matana also means present. Nachaliel means divine heritage, and Bamot means heights. So you say here you can learn that you can interpret this verse that just as somebody uses the gift of Torah, he'll get he'll gain divine heritage. And that divine heritage will elevate him and lead him to spiritual heights. This Rabotai is the end of the Mishnah where you see that yes, there is an enormous amount of seriousness in the Torah about rebuke, about punishment, about things that are not so pleasing to hear. But nonetheless, unfortunately, is everywhere. They're everywhere. These types of people are everywhere. They're disrespecting the Torah and not valuing it. 
where literally they look and yearn for, for opportunities to learn Torah all the time, every time, every day, not just once a day, not just an hour a day. They're constantly looking for these opportunities. There's very few people that are constantly looking for opportunities to learn Torah. It's the opposite we have. We have the people that are in Azuf that are constantly looking for opportunities not to learn Torah. And the Baal Shem Tov says, this Nazuf, this person that disrespects Torah, he prays, no one listens. He prays in a minyan, no minyan, with minyan, no minyan, no one listens to him. Why? He's banished in Shemaim. The Baal Shem Tov, Kodesh Kodeshim, says someone that doesn't value Torah, his prayer goes up to Shemaim, the angels completely ignore it. Everyone ignores it. Oh, this guy, eh. He's banished. Why? He doesn't value the Torah. Like I said, not everybody has the opportunity to be a big Talmud Chacham. But everybody has 15 minutes a day. Everybody has a half hour a day. Everybody has an hour a day to learn a little bit of Torah. Everybody goes and makes money and can donate for Torah. Everybody can do something. But you see a lot of people do nothing. Or the things they do are against the Torah. And that's what's causing the Mashiach not to come. Because unfortunately, whether they have a beard or not, a hat or not, they keep Shabbat or not, unfortunately there's a Nazuf everywhere. That's not making Torah number one. There's a lot of people. You can even tell them. They go to Kolel. They go to Kolel. They learn all day. Guy comes into the call, hey, listen, I need a bunch of guys to make matzot for Pesach. How much you paying? hundred bucks. One guy leaves. No one else. Two hundred bucks. Another guy leaves. Four hundred bucks. Another guy leaves. Thousand bucks. Everybody leaves almost. Except one guy that no one ever pays attention to, but he loves Torah. He's the only one that's not Nazuf. Why? Their Torah, it's good. But it wasn't number one. Why? They're willing to give it up for a price. If your Torah has a price, it's a problem. It's a problem. So this problem is not just secular world, religious world. No, no, it's everywhere. That's why it's a tshuva, is something that we all need to do. All of us need to do. Alvai, alvai, we can get a uh, keilah to do things. But the problem is that that means that the entire keilah has to be committed to doing tshuva. Which means that it's not just learning to it's fulfilling it. That means you can't say Lashon about against each other. People are say to you, what do you mean no Lashon What are we going to talk about then? Without Lashon what do we talk about then? If there's no Lashon we can't talk. What do you want us not to talk? Are you uh, crazy? They may stone you for saying such a thing in a big Knesset. That's it. No Lashonara. No Rechilut. No he said, she said. Already, you have a serious, you understand? So, point is that once people understand that in Ben David Ba, Mashiach is not coming unless everyone commits to doing tshuva. The Haridim, the Leitaim, the Hasidim, 
the Sfaradim, the Ashkenazim, the whatever you want. Everyone commits to doing tshuva. Because once it becomes the thing to do, the thing to do is tshuva, then some of us may actually succeed in doing tshuva. But until people realize that tshuva is the most important thing in the world, it's simply not going to happen. People think that, you know, getting chizuk to, you know, to, to be happier in the world, praying for parnasah, praying for this, praying for that, everybody prays for themselves. They're not praying for the, for, for, for the Mashiach. People say, oh yeah, you know, I wish Mashiach comes. Why? I have tax problems. What do you think? Mashiach is a, is a tax uh, employee. He works for the IRS. What do you think? He's a tax planner. Oh, I wish Mashiach was going to come. Why? I'm broke. What do you think? Mashiach has Social Security. He's welfare. He's going to give you food stamps. Oh, I wish Mashiach was going to come. Why? Uh, I want to get married. What do you think? He's a Shatchan? He's going to find you a wife? Like people want, people want Mashiach for their own problems. They think that Mashiach is going to fix their problem. Little do they know that's the problem. They're the problem. That mentality is the problem. Next. We have another shiur tomorrow night. It's uh, men only. It's at the uh, Shalashim in Hollywood. We did a shiur there some months ago. Young boys. Uh, I think it's good for anyone that can come. It's an adult. It's also good to come. Anyone that has young kids. From, you know, teenagers. 12, 13, 14 to 18. Bring them also. It's good. It's good for the parents to come. It's good for the kids to come. For a couple of reasons. It's good for the kids to come because hopefully they watch Shil Torah instead of the nonsense they watch instead. And number two, it's good for the parents to come because if you don't have kids, or you do have kids, then you'll get to see what the problem is today. Because it's going to be a questions and answer type of uh, shiur, hopefully, and you'll see, you'll be able to identify the problem in a generation based on the questions they have. Based on the questions they have. If a generation asks you, how can I become Moshe Rabbeinu? Mashiach is very close. We're doing good. But if the generation tells you, what can I do to make more money? Then you also know Mashiach is coming, he's very close. Just not in a good way though. Not in a good way. So you see the kids today are replicas of their parents. They're replicas of their parents. And these kids, they, they're great to have, to have, you know, 10, 20, 30 kids learning Torah. It's, it's fantastic. But it's also very, very important for us to learn from them. To learn from them because you'll see what's bothering them. Because what's, when you see what they ask about, what's bothering them, you'll see what's wrong with us as parents. If all the kid talks about is money and sports, that means that uh, that's all he sees from his parents. If all the kid talks about and thinks is money, that's what he sees from pa- his parents. If all the kid talks about is girls, that's what he sees from his parents. That's what he sees from his parents. The kids is a copy of his parents. 
You'll see all of the nasty parents have nasty little kids. All of them. No exception. If the mom is nasty, the daughter is nasty. Mom has a chip on her shoulder, little kid has a chip on her shoulder. How could the kid know why they even have a chip? They don't even know what a chip is. But they know whatever Ima is, I have to copy it. So Ima's nasty to Abba and everybody else, I have to be nasty to Abba and everybody else. That's where your kids are going to be. That's where your kids are going to be. If you're nasty, they're going to be nasty. You have a good face, they'll have a good face. You're generous, they'll be generous. Why? You're their role model. You're their role model. So you have to be careful with the kids. Without Hashem, hopefully it gives us a little bit of chizuk. We, Baruch Hashem, actually finished this Mishnah in only two shurim. Tomorrow night, Bezad Hashem, or next week, Bezad Hashem, we're going to actually uh, start a uh, new Mishnah. A new Mishnah. Uh, and Bezad uh, Hashem, it's, uh, it's going to be a very, very interesting one, because this one, we'll be talking about a uh, David HaMelech. David HaMelech, and what uh, makes somebody a rabbi. In reality, according to Halakha, and not necessarily according to people's opinions. Bauch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.